I'm Matthew Dubins. Welcome to Don't Scare Me with Donor Data, my podcast where I talk all things donor data with nonprofit professionals near and far to help get you more familiar with its trials and triumphs. In today's episode, I spoke with Celeste Bannon-Waterman, partner of the Research and Analytics Practice at Ketchum Canada Incorporated, or KCI for short. She and I go way back. In 2012, I worked at KCI as an analytics consultant and she was my supervisor. While working with her, I gained a huge appetite for doing analytics work as a consultant for nonprofits of different shapes and sizes. I always respected her methodical and focused perspective on the projects we tackled together. The conversation today follows along the same lines. We discussed something of a philosophical document or diagram created by her at KCI to explain the different stages of a nonprofit's data development. It starts with nonprofits who are as unsophisticated as possible in terms of their data infrastructure and ends with nonprofits who can start to use their data for such advanced topics as artificial intelligence. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hey, Celeste, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Matthew? Um, great, thanks. Uh, so listen, uh, thank you so much for agreeing to come onto this call with me uh, to uh, speak a little bit about both of our favorite topics, uh, nonprofits and uh, their development in terms of uh, their data infrastructure and data insights and such. Yeah, well, you know what? It's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, as you know, and um, I love to talk about it and uh, to try and help organizations improve the way they use their data because I think it's, you know, to all our benefits, frankly. Exactly. Um, so Celeste, you had shared with me uh, a really neat, uh, diagram that I liked very much uh, that uh, KCI and yourself call the data platform. Um, so I, I looked at it and I had this moment where um, I was just reminded about how much of a rigorously uh, linear thinker you are and how use, how useful this can be. Uh, honestly, no, no jokes. I mean, you know me, I'm a very scatterbrained individual. Um, but just, I was able to see almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, in the document that you had shared. Uh, but for, for, for nonprofit data, instead of um, uh, psychological and sociological needs. So I'm wondering if you could walk me through it one uh, tier or hierarchical level at a time. Um, and for each tier, I have at least one clarifying question that I'd like to ask, uh, but Celeste, please feel free to expand on the meaning of each tier as you see fit. Um, and for those who are listening, uh, I will be sharing a link to KCI's data platform uh, in the, the description section uh, for this podcast episode, so uh, not to worry. Okay, so the first tier is something you had labeled data capture and coding. 
Now, uh, Celeste, in your mind, what do you think of when you consider a nonprofit that captures data effectively and efficiently versus one that captures it ineffectively and inefficiently? Well, that's a that's a good question, Matt. And um, I think go back to your original point about you know the, the the linear nature of this, and I like the way you compared it to this hierarchy of needs because that was exactly where it came from for us. Was some of the conversations we and I have been having with clients around things like digital capability. Um, around AI, around advanced analytics. And what I've increasingly been thinking about is as people start getting ready for this new world that's going to come, like there's a lot of organizations out there that are still really on the basics and they aren't quite ready for it yet. And I think um, my worry about them is they're just kind of going to throw their hands up and be like, oh, you know, it will never be there. But my hope was if we could say, look, first of all, assess yourself, figure out where you are, but here's a bit of a roadmap so that you can start, you know, looking at what you want to focus on. And on the flip side, don't, don't worry about the advanced stuff if you're really still in the basics. Get that down because there's no point layering on something really advanced if you don't have good data to start with. And so when I talk about that data capture and coding level, that very first one, what I find there is everybody gets the basics, right? Like everyone's recording um, the donor name, the, get, the amount they gave, and the gift date. But I find even still there's a lot of charities that aren't going above and beyond and capturing some of those extra supplemental pieces of data that are really going to drive their ability to do some advanced work down the road. And so what I mean by that is like, what kind of donor was it to you? You know, if, if you're a, a community service charity, is this somebody who was a volunteer already? Is this somebody who uh, was a you know past recipient of your services? Is it just a community member? Is it, you know, somebody else with some link to you? How did it come in? Like what channel did that gift come in on? Was it in response to something like an event or did it just come in spontaneously? You know, because one of the things I know you and I both um, noticed through our analytics work, things like unsolicited gifts are such huge predictors of who's going to go on to give to you again and again and higher levels. But if you're not capturing that, you can't go and use that at later stages. Um, right. Right, exactly. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting uh, historical and um, quirky information uh, about donors, uh, any one of which, including, you know, whether or not they came in through um, uh, unsolicited giving or, you know, some other acquisition channel that might later on prove to actually be rather predictive of highly valuable philanthropic behaviors. Yeah. So, so the question is like, are you capturing those simple things? And that's one of the things that I want organizations to start with right now, if they aren't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, that that's uh it's, it's great philosophy to think about philosophy that, translates into uh, good record keeping and record keeping uh, that translates into good fundraising. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the things I also get asked a lot about this level is the question we have in there, and, and your users will see this if they um, download the visual, but one of the questions in this level is, does coding support directional analysis? And what I mean by that is, are you coding 
that data you get in a way that you can analyze over time or via a direction. So for example, what I mean by that is like, if you are capturing that channel that the gift comes in on, for example, whether it's unsolicited or in response to an event, can you analyze that over time? Can you assess how much are we getting unsolicited, um, you know, or by, you know, mail versus email over time, as opposed to what I see, and this is a little bit um, kind of leading up to our next level, which is, are you, are you coding in such a way that it hinders your ability to look at your data from multiple directions? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So are you, um, are, are you being overly simplistic maybe is what you're are you saying? Being overly, like, are you being, actually it's, it's more like, are you being overly detailed and the, the, the greater the, the detail you use in one field, the harder it actually gets to compare over time. Uh, so what I mean by that is like, I, I see this um, where you'll go into an organization and they will try to put everything into one field. Like you'll have campaigns, 2019 annual event golf tournaments. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that's yeah. fantastic. If you want to know what you raised from golf tournament events, uh, in 2019. But if that's the only place you're capturing all those pieces, it makes it really hard for you to do things like how much did we raise through golf tournaments over the years? How much, you know, have our events actually brought in? Um, you know, even just the fact that you're putting something into the field, like 2019, that you're already capturing in the date field, just complicates things. And it makes it hard for people to use built-in reporting tools and to do simple reporting that really pulls out deep meaning over time. Yeah, because uh, it, it's almost as though when you try to do too much with any one field, then you're not, you're barely going to be able to do anything with that field. Exactly. <laughs> Except for that one thing you've now micromanaged it to do. <laughs> I like that terminology. Oh my goodness. <laughs> that is great. Um, okay, so let's move on to the next tier, which you've labeled integration and uh, data structure. Um, so the first thing that came to mind when I was looking at this particular tier is that, well, gee, I'm assuming that Celeste uh, doesn't include in this tier, any nonprofits that uh, manage their data through Microsoft Excel? <laughs> uh, no, but this, but this is aiming at them a little bit because um, I'm sure you still see this, I still do, where they might have a donor database that holds some types of data, but they're still tracking other things in good old Excel. Um, so that still happens for sure. But what I, what I find right now is it's, it's not so much the Excel, that's still out there. What I'm finding is that more of a problem is the specialized channels that we're getting into. So you can see why I've got peer-to-peer -peer platforms is right off the top because I find that we're seeing um, a lot of charity, big charities that have all this wealth of data about their huge peer-to-peer -peer programs sitting in one database. And then they've got direct response yeah. sitting in another database. And then they're managing volunteers in another database. And all these um, systems are really optimized towards managing those particular types 
of interactions. But the problem is, if they aren't talking to each other well, you can have supporters that are in all three databases, and you never really have a good picture of that person's role with your organization. And then in turn, that, that person, like they think you know. They, they believe you, you know their whole picture. It gets very frustrating when you don't. Yeah, you know, I was also uh, reminded of a nonprofit that I used to work for uh, that had been operation for at least 20 years. And uh, just as you were describing, uh, they had various data sources that they had accumulated over the years, including a huge like countrywide peer-to-peer event. Um, and uh, they, uh, these sources, these data sources that they had accumulated over the years just didn't talk to one another. Um, and so, yeah, it seems like you are uh, targeting these sorts of organizations uh, within this tier. And it, it's almost like a really hard conversation has to be had with such a nonprofit in order to get them to be more advanced. You like, someone needs to deliver to them the bad news of, hey, you know, all of these like, big hulking um, uh, uh, data infrastructure systems that you've collected over the years, well, you're gonna need to either replace all of them with one big one or find someone who can marry them all together into one big data warehouse. And that is not an easy conversation to no, have. No, no. And I'm very sympathetic to them because it's not, it, it, you know, I, I understand. It's not like they set out to build this kind of Frankenstein data ecosystem. Um, you know, they, they, they built, they, they started using tools as things came up and that were most appropriate. It's just that now as we're moving into this new world where data is becoming ever more integrated and where, you know, the, the ability to bring on these, these tools that are going to make the most of it, like AI, frankly, um, it relies on being able to pull those threads together. And suddenly, you know, that what seemed like optimization and seemed like really efficient use of technical tools now is a bit of a challenge. And so that's the thing I think um, those organizations just really want to start thinking about is how do we start to move away from this system? And from what I've seen, a lot of them are. So I'm just trying to give them, you know, the, the encouragement to, to keep pushing forward on those plans. Cause right now is going to be the time. I think it's going to be easy to retreat from, from that type of work and they need to keep going. Yeah. Um, I, I especially acutely agree with you uh, in today's world order, I think it, it seems almost like uh, it would be a, like a dumb idea to invest in, you know, in data and uh, data infrastructure and, and whatever, because like, oh, we're not, we're not sure about, you know, the donations coming in and how can we invest in data if, you know, we're in this whole pandemic. Um, but I don't actually think that way. And uh, I uh, instead 100% agree that uh, it's, it's either sink or swim. And if you don't have the data stacked up 
in your favor, then it, it's it's going to be worse for you. Well, yeah, especially because I think if anything, right now is showing the importance of integration and being um, digital ready in terms of you know being able to respond fluidly to where people are and where people are right now. Now, mind you, for your listeners who might not be hearing this fresh, it's you know the end of April, 2020, and we're all kind of, the world's in quarantine and we're all connecting virtually. And that's how we're engaging. That's how we're doing fundraising of all types. And um, the organizations that have their data, you know, um, together and are able to respond to this, for example, that are able to pivot and turn their direct mail donors now and to reach out to them online, they're going to survive this much better than those that are perhaps a bit more struggling. And to be fair, like we're not just talking about the big national charities here. There's smaller charities that are doing this too. And, and little, little systems they might not be thinking about that are kind of um, siloing their data. Even things like email platforms like Constant Contact or MailChimp. If you're keeping donor communication preferences in there that aren't getting back to your CRM, that's going to be a problem down the road for you. So be careful about what you're kind of choosing to implement even now and start thinking now if you're implementing new tools about how you're going to get that data back into your primary database record. Huh. Um, now, this is a, a question that hadn't occurred to me to ask you before, um, but do you have any nonprofit clients uh, who are sending out uh, direct mail solicitations Not at this at point? this point, but it's still happening. Yeah, I mean, direct mail is still a thing. Um, and I think it, you know, there might be a pause right now this month, but I expect mail will continue to happen at some point because that is the only way we reach some donors. Yeah, yeah, and that that uh, uh, that time frame of you know the pandemic right now uh, was what yeah. I was uh, specifically interested in, and whether whether or not um, nonprofits are uh, afraid to send physical mail packages. Um, when people might be especially germaphobic. Uh, yeah, I mean, some people might be thinking about that, but I know I personally have gotten mail from charities in the last few weeks, and, and I believe many of my clients are still planning to do that. Um, where possible, I think they are starting to pivot more to online. Um, but but given the stats that show that, you know, your, your risk of, of picking anything up from physical mail is quite low, I think we are still going to see direct mail in the next while. Interesting. Oh, that's good to know. <laughs> um, okay, so why don't we get back on track and uh, we're going to look at tier three, which you've labeled metrics and reporting. Um, so how common is it in your experience to have a nonprofit that passes muster on tiers one and two, uh, but they don't have a good grasp over their fundraising metrics and reporting? Well, it depends what you... What you call metrics and reporting and what sort of metrics you're looking for. I find most people generally have a good handle on the basics. Absolutely. From what I see in terms of being able to understand things like, you know, their money raised per program, per channel, donor counts, um, you know, things like that. But what I, what I don't always see is, are they really monitoring and watching some of the key things below the total dollar amounts? And what I mean by that are some of the, the leading indicators. So 
donor acquisition. Are you acquiring enough donors to keep your pipeline filled, to keep your program solid? Where are those donors coming from? Are they coming from the areas you want them to come from? So for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm working with a hospital client and they have a real goal around acquiring younger donors and donors from newer areas in their community, like new, new suburbs that are springing up around them. They want to make sure they're not just kind of talking to the same old, same olds in their community. And so that kind of metric tied very clearly to a strategic goal and the, the awareness of how you're going to monitor and how you're going to assess that. Um, I don't always see that among organizations. Um, in terms of a couple other things, I think uh, retention is another key thing and renewal rates. It's very obviously very closely tied together, but I find a lot of organizations tend to look at those big picture only and they aren't kind of digging into particular segments of donors and in particular looking at their new donors. Are they keeping new donors that they spend so much you know, work and energy to acquire in the way they, at the levels they want to be I don't always see that. Um, yeah, yeah, that uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and uh, here's sort of uh, almost the flip side of that question: um, Have you come across any examples of organizations that? Uh, <laughs> suffer from analysis paralysis so they just uh track so many things they basically do nothing <laughs> and then like how can you get everyone on board with like a minimal set yeah, of useful yeah I, I do see that somewhat um what i often see though is a little bit too much ad hoc and self-defined reporting so where you know you might have one poor person who pulls reports and everybody's kind of asking them for stuff that is slightly differently defined or, you know, um, very unique to their particular program. Timing isn't always the same. And so they're trying to be very responsive to all these requests because it's not integrated. Often you end up with conflicting data too, which is a challenge. So one of the things that I'm really working with some of our clients on is streamlining their reporting and trying to do things like periodically pull all the data and get kind of a state of the union for all programs, all aspects of their organization, and then push it out, like really kind of almost a bit of an old fashioned, you know, data cube, if you will, that then people can slice and dice a bit themselves so that they're doing less of, you know, just the grunt work and leaving them more time to think about the deeper analysis in between the periodic big reporting streams. And also coming back to that integration with goals, like really aligning their metrics with their goals so they're not doing metrics that aren't meaningful at the end of the day. Yes, yeah, uh, absolutely. It, it's ma making sure that strategy and objective are front and center stage and that uh, the analytics and the metrics and whatnot are uh, always following strategy and objective and uh, you know not uh, leading not leading them it's you know not putting the uh, the mm -hmm. cart before the Agreed. horse so to speak okay um, and that brings us to the final tier uh, on the data platform 
uh, analytics and advanced tools. So uh, I've seen in my experience, uh, donor data insights can be very transformative, uh, especially when an organization hasn't benefited from them in the past. Uh, can you give me your favorite example, without naming names, of course, uh, of an organization that saw an impressive transformation thanks to harnessing their data to understand their donors? Impressive transformation is um, is putting a lot of pressure on that question, Matthew. <laughs> but, um, because um, the thing I find about this is to really make change, there has to be willingness to change what you're doing based on the results. And that I find is, is sometimes the tricky mm -hmm. part for organizations. So my favorite example might not actually be transformational change, but I'll, I'll tell you why it's my favorite example. And it goes back many years in my career. This was around 2012-ish. Um, I did this particular project and it was working with a hospital foundation that deliberately wanted to save on their mailing costs for their grateful patient acquisition. So um, for people who just might not be familiar with the hospital sector, um, they mail to people who have been um, patients at a hospital typically. The foundation does not get the data for privacy reasons, is a key part of this story I'm gonna tell you. Um, so what they do is they give specifications to the hospital that has the data, you know, mail these people. Um, and what they had been doing at this particular foundation was everybody, basically everybody who'd been at the hospital in the last month for a certain duration of time, they got a, you know, please give to the hospital that just treated you letter. And mailing costs were going up, they saw the writing on the wall, so they wanted to reduce how many of these they mailed, but not necessarily just do it kind of randomly, they wanted to try and keep mailing their best potential acquisition prospects. So what they did is they, of course, um, hired us and, and we went in as third parties and looked at the data from the hospital side, what was appropriate, no medical information, let me assure your listeners, only anonymized data. Um, but we were able to, using um, address information, link back as best we could what patients had actually responded and gave in response to these grateful patient acquisition mailings. And based on that, we were able to provide them with some additional criteria so that they could reduce those mailings. So, you know, it came down to simple things like these particular postal codes, um, you know, patients who had been in for a certain length of time versus another length of time, all kinds of different things that the hospital was then able to use to reduce the list that they were mailing to on behalf of the foundation. And the foundation cut their mailing costs more than 50% but only reduced the donors they were getting by about 20%. And to me, that was a win because you could see the increased efficiency from those mailings and they were able to take that saved money and use it in other ways to offset that 20% reduction. And they really acted on the results. And that's what I come back to is because I find um, there's often a lot of use of analytics that is more used to reinforce what you're doing already. It's really when you're able to say, you know, we're going to do things differently and we're going to take a risk here that you get the best bang for your buck out of this. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it's not, we, we, we don't do analytics um, in order to just simply wag a finger uh, or to pat ourselves on the back. Uh, we do it in order to um, stimulate or facilitate 
uh, a change in strategic direction. And uh, I totally agree with you. This story does represent uh, a, a good news result uh, that they were able to become more efficient. Uh, they were able to mm -hmm. save quite a bit of money uh, and uh, use it in other ways. Uh, so thank you for sharing that example with me. Yes. It was great. I also have another one I love about another organization that did more kind of sophisticated analytics to build a profile of who was most likely to respond to their um, monthly donor acquisition from within their existing donor base. But that I think we do a lot more. Um, and those stories are a, a dime a dozen because those, those were those are fantastic. That particular organization I'm thinking of, um, they were able to almost double their monthly donor stream within a year. They were thrilled with the results and the, the model, and they really got to understand what I thought was really valuable. They got to understand their donors a little bit more, and they used it in other ways. But again, um, they were willing to make change. And in this case, they changed who they sent this appeal to. And they stopped sending it to people they used to, to do before. I find that's a little easier for organizations to do with existing donors. It gets really tough when you're, you know, taking that chance on, you know, the one that got away from your donor acquisition streams. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the, the, the key here being it's the organizations who have a willingness yes. to change Risk. what they're doing. Risk tolerance. Risk risk tolerance exactly um okay so my final question uh, on this tier um sort of a mix between mm -hmm. a comment and a question at least uh I, I find that often when i do statistical modeling for nonprofits to help them predict the future in some fashion uh, the usefulness of the results depends on the usefulness of the organization's business problem uh, in other words, uh, the question that they want to answer. Um, what would you say are, the, uh, are some of the most useful questions uh, for a nonprofit to answer using statistical um, models? Yeah, so I totally agree with you on this one, Matt. And I'm, I'm going to give you fair warning right now that I'm going to turn this back on you and ask you to think about some examples that you have from your clients that might be some some kind of relevant ones to add into this but the useful questions um i find it depends a bit on what the organization is obviously and what their revenue channels are but the the useful questions to answer are anywhere where there's a numbers it's, it's a volume of numbers is what i mean by that because i always say stats is a numbers game right so it's much more useful to aim your analytics in my experience at anything where you're doing segmentation and you're trying to define a group and you're, you're trying to maximize your results from that group as opposed to as much as, you know, we do it a lot in analytics as opposed to trying to find that needle in the haystack of your, you know, $5 million donor, because that's really tough, first of all, and you're, you know, the actual odds of finding those people are so low. Even when you increase the odds, it's still low. But if you can do something where you, if you're mailing a thousand people and you can aim that thousand people at a group that nets you, you know, 75% of them responding as opposed to 60% responding, that starts really adding up if you're investing the same degree of resources. So those questions of, who should I send my monthly giving appeal to? Who should I send my 
donor acquisition mailing to? Who should I focus on for my, you know, follow-up personal contact when I'm, you know, aiming my um, call center or whatever it is? You know, those sorts of questions, I think, are the best, as opposed to, you know, how do I find my next $5 million donor? You, you can disagree. I'm curious if you do. Um, this is, uh, this is reminding me, uh, of a client project that I had where, um, I was asked to look for, uh, high value donors, uh, and I was given a, a whole bunch of data dumps uh, from this very small nonprofit uh, a database. And um, I, uh, I, I uh, told my, uh, uh, I told the stakeholders, my client contacts, um, about what I was able to do with regards to uh, figuring out you know, uh, can we score people according to likelihood of giving at some, you know, high value? And, you know, of course, as you mentioned, uh, uh, they wanted to target, you know, the highest value donors possible. Uh, but given that this particular case uh, was mm -hmm. a very small nonprofit and they didn't, they didn't have a lot of history uh, in terms of um, the sh sheer number uh, or scale of donors who had given at a, a relatively high level, uh, I ended up targeting the modeling uh, at a much more uh, humble and appropriate level. Um, and, you know, it really was my own fault that I didn't confirm over like phone or, you know, some other um, uh, uh, harder to ignore communications medium, uh, what the objective was, uh, because uh, I ended up emailing what the objective was and uh, I forged ahead with this project. And then later on I was told, well, you know, there, we, we really thought that this would identify way more, uh, you know, $10,000 donors or whatever it was um, <laughs> through the modeling and it didn't so we're not really going to use it um, so yeah it's not always wise to uh, look for that needle in the haystack um, but uh, what I like to do, uh, and I think this sort of uh, got started when <laughs> I personally was at KCI, um, is uh, I, I like to consider uh, a, uh, a, a major gift prospect uh, as someone who is really in the, the top echelon um, in the context of that particular nonprofit's uh, own history. And th this could be like, you know, the top one to 5% or whatever. And uh, you know, just as well as I do that, 
you know, if you do find a decent cadre of donors who have given in that top one to 5% or whatever the case may be, um, you know, you can make it work for a statistical algorithm. Uh, but the fact remains, you need enough people to feed exactly. that You're algorithm. Exactly. You're absolutely right, Matthew. And it's, it's, I can remember having a lot of conversations with you about this sort of thing, um, which was, which was fun. I miss that. Um, but trying to, you know, you're absolutely right that the top is the top. Um, but analytics fundamentally, that type of um, modeling relies on, like you said, having enough actual cases to model. And it also relies a little bit on using the past to predict the future. And I find for a lot of organizations these days, they're, they're looking to do something different, especially with those major, major donors. They're looking for either really completely new donors or they're looking for a new way to engage with them or, or something very different. And I think that's where, you know, you kind of um, have to really talk to them about the limits of analytics, but there's a lot of other ways to get at that too. So it's not like we don't have tools in our toolkit, so to speak. Um, and to bring it back to the top one to 5%, I think there's a really missed opportunity for a lot of charities right now is remembering that your top 5% of donors are responsible for probably like 75 to 80% of revenues. And anything you can do to isolate and understand who they are, how you can, you know, support them better, steward them better, ask them better, and, you know, increase their engagement with you and then ideally their contributions, that is money well spent, even though it might be, you know, donors at the $1,000 level or the $5,000 level for some organizations. Modest but higher value donors are so important. And that is the area where I also think um, we need to really think about focusing our analytics resources on and hopefully talk to our clients. Uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I very much agree. Um, and uh, I mean, in terms of uh, other questions uh, to, uh, to ask of the data uh, using advanced analytics, um, I mean, other things could be, uh, you know, uh, what's, the, uh, what's the profile of um, uh, multi-channel donors? Uh, uh, how do we predict um, who uh, who or what constitutes I should say yeah what constitutes uh, high value uh, uh, email solicitation donors um, uh, or even um, uh, here's a an interesting one um, uh, which donors in my yes. database are flight risks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, and, so like trend and, modeling. And um, when should you stop chasing them is the other question. Like, what is the point of diminishing returns for some group? You know, I always I always um, think of the point where, you know, the best advice is on this segment, maybe you want to conserve your resources, right? But where's the place where you risk losing a lot of value if you do overly conserve resources and, and, and doing the analytics to really understand the difference between those two groups can help charities really maximize revenue. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you, uh, you attack return on investment, uh, both from a, an expenditure perspective, 
but also the uh, mm -hmm. revenue generation perspective. Well, that's just it. You always have to be balancing the two pieces, right? What's what's the best ROI here? And if, you know, to, to also kind of bring it home in terms of where should you be aiming your analytics, wherever it's going to help with that ROI is really fundamentally what you want to be looking at. Exactly. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> listen, Celeste, um, this has uh, been a really fun conversation and uh, I've, I've really appreciated having you on uh oh on no my thank you thanks today. for inviting so me matthew it's been so fun much. and um i look forward to next time uh absolutely um so uh, uh i'm going to uh put some links to uh some kci materials uh in the description of this podcast episode um, as well as uh, a link to uh, uh, KCI's website. Uh, and uh, otherwise, uh, thank you so much, Celeste. And, yes, uh, you too. Stay, uh, All right, happy talk to you again soon, healthy. Matthew. Okay, bye. Okay, bye bye. That's it for today's episode. If you'd like to find out more about me and the services that I offer through my data science consulting company, feel free to visit www.donorscience.ca. I hope you've learned something interesting from this episode and that I haven't scared you with donor data.